ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Hard to Paint with David Grubb. And today, um, I am joined by the best-selling author of the novel The Hate You Give, which was also turned into a, a major motion picture, which I experienced with my daughter, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, she, she also has her second novel out on the come up out right now. You also may know her as a Pelican super fan. Regular presence at home games and on Twitter, Pelicans Twitter, NBA Twitter. So I'm glad to have her join HITP for the first time. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Angie Thomas. Thank you so much for having me. This is an honor. It really is. I listen to you all the time. So I'm truly honored. I hope I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> I, hope I hope it's not one of them hate listens because I get some oh, no. of those. No, no, no. It's all love. All love. Um, well, I'm glad to have you here. But first, I, I want to deal with this week. The, today, um, you and I... I look, we follow each other on Twitter. We're both very vocal people. We are not shy. Mm-hmm. How are you doing, first and foremost? And what are your thoughts and feelings about this election process and what it says about us and what it could mean going forward? Yeah, we were just having a great conversation about that. You know, I feel like I'm teetering on joy, but I feel like I've been teetering on joy as a Black woman in this country my whole life. You know, I'm glad that we will no longer have that Cheeto in charge. I'm just going to say it. But at the same time, once again, here comes black folks throwing on the cape, saving the day. And then what are we getting in exchange? You know, like what's going to happen for our communities? What kind of progress are we going to actually see in the black community? Um, and and knowing, too, that um, as a black woman in Mississippi, I I see things all the time. I know how things work here, but also I think back to this quote by William Faulkner that says, if you want to know America, know Mississippi. Hmm. And and I feel like that applies to the deep South in a lot of ways. Um, because what you're seeing now that's happening in Georgia, yeah, that's great. But the fight to get to that point was ridiculous and so we still have mostly black states states with the highest black populations in them that are fighting for black people to have voting rights you know or or fighting against voting suppression and all of this so i'm happy that there's some change happening but i want to see real change because this feels you know this this feels great but okay what's happening beyond this what's next like do we have to keep saving the day and only getting crumb only get crumbs in return Mm -hmm. that's not all right so we'll see what happens i i I have a hope i have a little more hope and faith but america has let me down a lot change is not a synonym for progress Mm -mm. you know you can change the channel and the shows are no better you know saying they're they're different It might be a comedy instead of a tragedy, but doesn't mean it's, it's not a bad show. And that's what I think black folks have been found in that dilemma since we were able to vote is that we've changed the channel many times. Yes. And we've been asked to do it. We've been asked to believe in, in, in these things. 
And whether it was affirmative action, whether it was um, inner city funding, whether it was all, we were the ones who benefited least from these programs that they said were for us. Yes. And particularly black women who we see right now suffer the worst in this economic recovery post COVID black women are getting their jobs slower than everybody else. They get still getting paid less than everybody else. And yet at the forefront of all of this to save this election, to save this year. Yeah. Like if, for me, if time magazine does not say the person of the year is the black woman. Like, and I'm not saying that to pander. I'm just saying, right. go look at the receipts. Here are black women again. What are black women like in particular? And it's mm-hmm. it's disheartening to see how many black men went over on pocketbook decisions and wallet decisions over people mm-hmm. and stepped over their own women to do it. Mm-hmm. And it just it that bothers me tremendously about this cycle. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, you know, when I look at even the guys, you have like the Kanye West and the Lil Wayne's and the Ice Cubes. And the thing is, they're reflective of some of the mindsets we've seen come forth, you know? Um, and and that's, that is frightening. But at the same time, um, I hope this is a day of reckoning for anybody who has fell into that trap. Because the, the, the truth is, that side does not care about you. <laughs> You know, um, and I'm not saying with terrorists. No, and I'm not saying that the Democrats are a whole lot better. But here's the thing: I don't think they want me dead. (laughs) They may not know what's best. They may not get it. Right. But but, they're not openly hostile. Right. I mean, I can't negotiate with people who don't see my humanity. And you know, and I know somebody listening to this is going to be like, well, not all Republicans. Okay, but there's a big chunk that y'all need to check. And that's not on me. That's on you. You know, if you want a better uh, view of your party, you need to check those folks. You need to check that attitude. You need to weed that out. Um, I think about that a lot, too, with white evangelicals. Blah, they, they, I had a conversation recently with one. Uh, he was like, um, well, both of them are bad. And I'm like, excuse me? He's like, well... Biden will be okay with killing babies in the womb. I'm like, okay, you say you're pro-life, but do you care about life once it's out of the womb? Because you sound pro-fetus, not pro-life. <laughs> and I and it really, it jolted him for a second. And I'm like, this is what I'm talking about. So many people are focused on things through a lens that makes them comfortable. Discomfort is going to be well, not going to be. Discomfort is one of the biggest enemies of this country because nobody wants to step outside of their comfort zone. Nobody wants to get uncomfortable and check themselves, you know? But the fact of the matter is, according to my trainer, true change comes from discomfort. Hey, it's like the old story we heard. You know, take sand in an oyster, an irritant to make a pearl. Exactly, exactly. So it's gonna, people gotta check themselves. And I say it all the time. I tell young people, especially young black kids all the time, racism is not for you to fix. You didn't start this. This system was not on you. It's not your responsibility to fix. So the folks who need to fix it know who they are. Because they're the ones that benefit from it. Because the conversation they want to have with you too often Mm -hmm. is one that will ultimately make them feel okay. Mm 
They want you to reassure them in some way that they'll be all that they will be all right, that their guilt will be gone, that there can be true equality through a passive, smooth process that they don't have to give anything up. Like no. their feelings, their transfer of good feelings will do the work. And it doesn't play out that way. We know it and they know it too. Mm-hmm. And like you said, if you're unwilling as a country, and we've been unwilling to listen to folks, we act like we can't listen to anything outside this country. I have often said that we have a severe insecurity problem because you don't go other countries and see people having to drive around with their flags on it. I know I'm in America. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't have to look around and and realize that by the number of flags Mm -hmm. you got around. Right. You have to put a flag up of your house, you know, and walk around with your family creed to remind yourself that you're in your family. I know where I am, right. but it's this thing of the facade is so much, there's so much weight mm-hmm. that if it's broken, I don't think they can handle it psychologically to understand what we know mm-hmm. and what native peoples know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to hopefully a growing extent, some Latinos start to realize, but yeah, we know how this works and they just don't, that facade I think is so important that dream of what America is on a thing because then they also have to realize it ain't working for most of them either right absolutely absolutely I always I challenge young people and I'm starting to challenge not so young people to do this and it and it's it's something it's such a small thing but it can make a huge difference and that's ask yourself do I know what it's like to be somebody who isn't like me in my city, my neighborhood, my job. You know, do I know what it's like to be, if you're a white person, do I know what it's like to be a black person in my community, in my city, at my job? Do I know what it's like to be a Latino person? All these things. Because once you start knowing, you start becoming aware of things that are happening right around you every single day that feed into this system. You know, when we're talking about systemic racism, um, it's a, it's woven into the very fabric of this country. And y'all have, and so white folks have gotten away with being unaware. They've gotten away with it. They continue to get away with it, but they gotta, you gotta start taking the time to get in the know. And, and ignorance is no longer an option. We live in a world where you cannot rely on ignorance as the reason for your not knowing. No. You have so many resources available for you to find out what's really going on. And I, I, I just, I hope that we will start to see some progress. Like you were saying, change is easy. You know, you can change the channel and shows still suck. I love that. I love that analogy. Um, but yeah, I want to see real progress. And it's going to take not just on the political side, but actual people. You know, if you're listening to this right now, check yourself. You know, check your privilege. People hate that word too, privilege, privilege, privilege. They think that's saying you don't work hard for something. Mm -hmm. That is not what people are saying. But if you've never had to sit down with your parents and have a conversation about what to do if a cop pulls you over, congratulations, you're privileged. Or how to change your voice when you, like just ordering, people don't understand, ordering things over the phone was a problem for my friends. When I was in high school, they would call me because I speak the way I speak. And they'd say, they won't take my order. Like, it's those kind of simple things in life. They won't take my order. Can you call? 
And I did that. Oh. And pe- no one, no, there's not a white person alive who's had to experience something like that. Just That's the simple act of ordering a pizza becomes racial. Exactly. Exactly. So again, it's in the very fabric of this country. And I at least start to recognize that. That's a huge step because so many people don't want to even recognize that. And they want to say you're being un-American by pointing out that fact. It's a fact. (laughs) Like if as people, as a human being, if I cannot be honest about my failures and the things that I do not have right about myself, How are we supposed to improve? Whether you're working on your physical fitness, whether we're talking about working in your career, if you go in there, you think, hey, like, as a writer, if you say, I've always written a perfect paragraph, come on. <laughs> exactly. Come on. <laughs> it's it's kind of like there's this idea of marginalized people don't have the right to criticize America. And that's so, that's, there's so much hypocrisy in that because the very phrase of make America great again is a criticism of this country. So why can't I as a black person say, well, it's never been great. <laughs> and suddenly that's a problem? No. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> no. It, it, like I think it, the funniest part about it too is just the the, the the fact that we've invested in this since before there was an America. You know, we have fought in everything, every war. French and Indian War, there were slaves fighting. You know, up and throughout history, we've been asking just to, to be treated as equals. My grandfather fought World War II, told me the stories, told my father the stories about the, the American soldiers treating the Nazis better than them. Mm-hmm. About them not even being permitted to ride with American soldiers, and yet the Nazis were riding with American soldiers in the same train cars. Yep. And, and, and you know, he came back. There was no GI Bill for him. There was no education. There was no home ownership program for him. He had to work in a hospital laundry for thirty years. Mm-hmm. It's like so. And when we talk about the trillions of dollars of generational wealth that has been lost, and people then want to come to you and say. Hey, you can make it. Let me steal trillions of dollars from the United States and -hmm. put it in the hands of a small group of people. Mm -hmm. And let's do that again and see if you just say, well, everybody else, let's just make it work. (laughs) Figure out your way. And they use the exception as the rule. Every time one black person gets through, Mm -hmm. they say, well, look, all of you should be able to make it. No. No, that's not how life works. You wouldn't cite you wouldn't cite LeBron James as the typical example and say, if he can be the greatest basketball player of all time, why can't all of you? Right. I saw somebody point out how rich LeBron is, and they were like, but, you know, he's not privileged. <laughs> Are we going to really get into this, how people have attacked LeBron simply because of his voting initiatives and everything? And I know for a fact that if he were white, the – the anger behind the attacks would not be the same. Don't come at me. Money does not change anything. You know, he may have a mansion, but take that all away. Let him drive in the wrong neighborhood on the wrong night. I mean, come on. Even when he was leaving Cleveland, I remember people were spray painting the N-word on the gates at his house. Burnt. You know, I've never seen a white athlete get his jersey burnt. Right. Have you? Never. 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 I mean, 
I just I have it. I even have to say about my felican my felican my fellow Pels fans. You know, I'm not happy with AD at all at times. But some of the anger that I've seen of the audacity of this black man to make a decision to go to another, you know, and yeah, he may have gone about it the wrong way, but at times y'all crossed the line with that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, absolutely. Uh, we can talk bad business decisions anytime and we can, again, those are the types of things you can disagree on, Right. but I will never attack a player's humanity. I can't judge what goes on in their brain. I'm not living their life. Now your actions I can talk about, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to make a value judgment on a, in a business decision in that regard. Now, it, it can be criticized, but I don't think AD the person no, and AD the business person, I'm not going to conflagrate the two of those people. Exactly. Exactly. Let's talk about writing a little bit more. Okay. Um, we all have our favorite writers, whether you're a journalist or whether you're just a reader. Um, you as a writer, who were the people that first spoke to you through the written word? And then who are those who have kind of been your mentors as well? Uh, when I was a kid, I liked reading. I loved reading. And so there was this one book called Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. Yes, that, like, I remember. It was my favorite because it was about a black girl in Mississippi. And there I was a black girl in Mississippi. So I felt seen. Um, but like when I was a teenager, I didn't enjoy reading. And it, I, I wasn't pulled to the written word. I was pulled to um hip-hop you know rappers were telling the stories that I saw myself in so some of my favorite storytellers are actually MCs like Nas and I Tupac obviously um and even Biggie I like Biggie you know I think he was a brilliant storyteller so um rappers were telling the stories about my community and they honestly gave me permission to do the same um, but I'll, I did eventually get into books and, and, and to the Tony Morrison and uh, Richard Wright, who was my granddad's childhood friend, you know, <laughs> and um, and just, you know, what I call the the black, uh, the, the 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 black. What's the word for it? The black canon. Yes. You know, I, I hate the literary canon as it is. <laughs> yes. So I have my own black canon that I consider, you know, like Zora Neale Hurst, you know, and um, Baldwin, James Baldwin. I mean, you have to throw them all in there. So <laughs> I've, I've been, there's been so much Baldwin in my life this year mm-hmm. because it's it's just eerily contextual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's just when I want to feel honest, I listen mm-hmm. to Baldwin yeah. or I read Baldwin. Um, and when I want to sometimes cry, mm-hmm. I read Baldwin. Um, and this time this year has been, it's been huge for me. I was, absolutely. It's so relevant to what's happening. And I feel like every, not just black person, but everybody needs to read the works of James Baldwin um, because it, it will it will resonate with you in ways that you aren't prepared for, honestly. And so much of who he was and what he did um, could be applied to now. And so um, I definitely, I, I, once I got into college, cause I went to a mostly white 
upper yeah, class I know private Christian. Yeah, I Bell know Haven. Bell Haven. Yeah, it's mostly white, upper class, private Christian school in Mississippi. And once I start reading James Baldwin and Toni Morrison and the autobiography of Malcolm X, that's when I feel like I got radicalized. <laughs> so those those for me were like the top three. Oh, along with um, Dr. Maya Angelou, obviously. Um, but once I started reading them, I felt like I found my voice. And I felt like, okay, I have the ability to tell stories about my folks and, and things that I see happening around me every single day um, that deserve to be told. You know, um, it, it didn't have to be a fantasy world with characters who didn't look like me. It, it didn't have to be all of those things. Um, it, it could be real, it could be here, it could be now. And they gave me that permission that I absolutely needed. The Hate You Give, um, I read it with my daughter. Um, we watched the film together. Thank you. Um, and it, it was it, it was a huge inflection point for us to have a lot of discuss, discussions that have snowballed over the months since. Like now my daughter, for her social studies fair project, she's doing about um, a gang uh, truce in New York City that was organized, you know. So that's, yeah. and I, she's, I said, well, what are you, you dropping some stuff on? She called me and said, Daddy, can I do this? I said, go ahead, baby, let's do it. Um, you know, she's, she looked up, like yesterday, tragically, she looked up Emmett Till for the first time mm. and looked at those pictures and asked me mm -hmm. about them. And at the same time, she's 12 years old. And yeah. this is a girl who knows who Fred Hampton is. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and coming out of that, the amazing thing about that book for us was that I knew the, the cultural references from the, the from Tupac and I could understand mm -hmm. those things. But for her, and it, even in the second book as well, it's centered around what I would say are three-dimensional female characters, young black women who get to be, who are very strong, but also get to be vulnerable and get to be kids. There are those very tender childlike moments that, that, that are conveyed as well. And you do not see those representations of particularly black girls in media, that they are fragile, that they are sweet, that they yes. are weak at times. And like we all are, they're always presented other times as either just being, having to be super strong or super innocent and no mm -hmm. variation in between. Wow. Well, first off, I got to send your daughter some books, some signed <laughs> books like that. That made my day like young people give me so much hope. Um, this upcoming generation, Gen Z, they are so much more aware of the world and willing to find out things and willing to get a little uncomfortable and willing to call out stuff than any previous generation I can think of. You know, um, the, these kids, they're, they're really going to change things like I, I, I often call their voice and I'm like, no, they have voices. I'm just their microphone, you know, and I just want to make them louder. So I, I gotta, I gotta send her some books like that just made my day. Um, but yeah, I, when I was writing the hate you give and then later on the come up, it was so important for me to write three dimensional black girls because often um, in media, black girls are either the sassy best friend or the over-sexualized vixen or the mean girl who may be coming for the white girls who stole all the, <laughs> who really stole all of her uh, cheer 
routines. I'm just talking about bring it out, you know, bring it on. But um, which is yeah. actually a deep race race movie. It is. It and is. And people it, sleep on it, and I'm like, no, that's some, the ending right yes. there. That's not normal for Hollywood to let the black folk win. No, and come no. up on the real, and I was like, okay. Right. And it's and it, I think, too, the way that they positioned Gabrielle Union's character at the beginning, I, at first, when I watched it, I was like a teenager. I was like, oh, see, they made the black girl the villain. And but in my mind, I'm like, this is these girls stole everything from them. Like it is such a discussion on cultural appropriation before we were talking about cultural appropriation, you know, and white and, guilt, too. Yes, yes. So, no, bring it on is a good one. Y'all need to stop sleeping on that. <laughs> yep, that's some deep, that's, they slid some deep stuff under the guise of a cheerleading movie. They did, they did. They absolutely did. But yeah, no, so when I was writing those books, that for me was always the priority, writing Black girls who felt real and whole and, and had those moments of, you know, vulnerability and, and also having those moments of anger. Like I have a lot of, I've had a lot of white women who've come to me about my second book on the come up and they're like, Bri is so angry at times. And I'm like, is that a problem? You got an angry man in the white house right now. Why is it an issue for this 16 year old black girl to be angry? You know? And, and I wanted to challenge that in people in my readers. I mean, yeah, she's angry quite a bit through the novel and she has every right to be because she lives in a world that has failed her time and time again. And there's this idea that, you know, if a black woman is angry, it's a stereotype. And we're not given that humanity and that wholeness and that realness of being able to display a full range of emotions because it's apparently a threat. And I wanted to take that back. So as an author, as a writer, that's always what I want to do through my stories. Um, like my third novel is um, Concrete Rose, and it's about Star's dad when he was a teenager. So I'm writing about a boy. And I wanted to reclaim the humanity of black boys um, because, you know, they're not things that go boom in the night, <laughs> you know, they're, they're not, you know, they're not threats to you, you know, and I wanted to write this young black man who is fully realized, who has a full range of emotions and, you know, on paper, he may look like everything that you've been warned against. He, he, yeah, he, he's in a gang. Yeah, he sells drugs to help his mom with bills, but also he is a human being with hopes, dreams, fears, aspirations, anger, sadness, and a story that deserves to be told. So, um, you know, I, I believe in the power of books to change minds, change hearts, and, and hopefully um, change the future. I don't know about the present, but, you know, if these kids who read my books now become politicians later on, maybe we won't have to say Black Lives Matter, it'll be understood. And the coolest thing though, is you got your book banned. That to me is the <laughs> ultimate sign of respect is that your thoughts are too dangerous for white folks in certain places. <laughs> That's a badge of honor, like to the highest degree. And the funny thing is every time they ban the book, the sales skyrocket. Like it happened in Texas first and it was like in the suburb outside of Houston. And and the school district banned the book because the uh, the superintendent wanted to say, or was it the principal? Either way, he wanted to say um, at this certain school that it was too vulgar, you know. But they were reading um, too, Huckleberry Finn. Right. He wanted to say there were too many curse words. But they reading Huckleberry Finn. Exactly. And and so 
when that happened, the thing is, if you tell teenagers especially, you shouldn't read this, it's inappropriate, it only makes them want to read it more. I mean, my sales my that week went through the roof. So I, I'm, I appreciate it when they ban it. <laughs> you got the Luther Campbell treatment. Exactly. Nobody would have known about as nasty as they would have been. That was underground. Exactly. They made two live crew into they made two live crew the biggest thing in the world because they wanted to act like it was something that was new. That wasn't new. Yeah, exactly. And then Tupac. I mean, I remember hearing about how the vice president at the time was talking about Tupac and Dolores yeah. Tucker and all of them were talking against Tupac and and stepping on his CDs and stuff. Oh, I've seen and, it all. Oh, yeah. And that just made, them, made kids want to listen to it more. So Look, I, I'll tell you this. See, I, I'm slightly older than you. It's all good. <laughs> So I, I I was like my birthday is August 11th, 1975. Hip hop was born August 11th, 1973. Wow! So you know that's the official date because that's Cool Herc's back to school jam. So I always had this the deep love affair like you with that music. Mm-hmm. It has always meant something to me. And I had to steal my first Public Enemy tape. I shoplifted it, and wow. I told Chuck D this. And I apologized to him many years later because he started following me on Twitter. And I was like, I had to apologize to him. I said, I stole it. And I know that was money out your pocket, but I bought a lot of stuff after. <laughs> but that's the world that I was in, you know, because people, mm-hmm. parents did not want me to, they didn't know. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what I was hearing. But when they finally got onto it, there was the same things they were giving me in books because my daddy was handing me Eldridge Cleaver. I was getting sold on ice in the ninth grade. You know wow. what I'm saying? Like, I was getting autobiography of Malcolm X. I was getting W.E. to be the boys. And I'm like, Dad, this is the same stuff. Right. This, this is the same stuff. I'm not missing, you know, it's like, it's just, he's just saying it different. And so mm-hmm. then they, they came around. But yeah, this stuff isn't new. Uh, like, a quick aside, when WAP, the controversy over WAP this summer, <laughs> I was just like, really? Really? You're that serious about this? <laughs> this isn't even close. Oh. You know. No. They got records that these people have not heard. Look, let me break out some Akinelli for them, and let's go back and let's see what you think is filthy. If you want to talk filthy, we got some filthy. Come on, I, I that that was a trip to me. It made me think about how when I was a little kid and TLC came out with "Ain't Too Proud to Beg," and you know, I'm sure my youth, I was like four, and so my pre-K teacher used to play TLC during nap time. And but I never napped. I was listening to the music instead. And I was like, at four years old, I came home singing Two Inches Over Yard, Rock Harder If It's Sagging. And my mom could have died. <laughs> I had no idea what I was saying. So this is not new. No. Y'all just, this is not new. Y'all just finding something else to what get. Was, what was Little Richard talking about? Exactly. Golly, Miss Molly, you show like the ball. All right. That's, look, whole lot of shaking going on. <laughs> That's, that's American popular music throughout its history. It's always been about sex. Mm-hmm. It always has been. And I just, mm-hmm. I thought the biggest part of it was it was women. Because we did this yes. with Lil' Kim. And we mm-hmm. did it with, with um, Cardi, I mean, not Cardi, but when Nikki first started, we we do mm-hmm. this every time. Salt and Pepper got it back in the day. So mm-hmm. it's like, come on, what, what? The first female who really started doing that stuff, even before Kim, I mean, look, even on records, uh, many, uh, not many ripped it, um, What's the the other lady? Who am I forgetting? But you know, it's not new. That's all. It's not new. But I think the thing is, when black women say they're taking control of their sexuality, that's a problem for everybody. Black men, but particularly white folks. Black Uh men got a problem with it 
But then white folks really trip out over it. Yeah. Yep. Again, it goes back to it, to the very fabric of this country, anti-blackness. Yep. Anti-blackness. Because we got into a conversation with folks from NABJ. We were having a conversation about how you just never still, you never see black women in romantic roles. Mm-mm. Like, when was the last time you saw a movie where the black woman was the romantic lead? Or if she was, it wasn't with a powerful white man. Yep. It's never. Even Tyler Perry did this with his show. No, yep. you going to give <laughs> the presidency to the uh, It's like, yeah. okay, here's the yep. dynamic again. Yep. Can't avoid it. Yep. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I know this is rambling all, but this is how I like it. I like it this yeah, way. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Um, so we talked about what's next. So let's do basketball for you. Let's yes. get into the basketball. That's what we brought you for. You got to be part of the virtual experience in the bubble. Yeah. Overall, how do you think the NBA handled that? process were you glad to see that they were able to resume the season and finish it do you think that was the best thing in light of what was going on in the country too mm-hmm. um as a pales fan i was disappointed in the bubble obviously yes. but as a whole um i think that they they did a good job of trying to keep the message there um the athletes themselves i wouldn't give this to the league i say the athletes themselves the league um, for me, it felt like, yeah, let's slap these Black Lives Matter words on the back of these jerseys and on the court. Yay, social justice. For me, it was the players themselves during interviews bringing back, bringing the conversation back to Breonna Taylor or George Floyd or, you know, um, talking about here's George Floyd on my sneakers. Here's what happened to him. Here's the work we need to get done. So I think the league did it to appease um, and, and look good and, and, you know, fine, great, whatever. But I feel like the true power of that was in the players themselves. Um, and, and the fact that a lot of them would not let that message get lost. Um, I, you know, I figured they were going to bring it back. I think, you know, whether it was a good decision or not, financially, obviously, maybe it wasn't. But um, I think, too, that I see both sides. I see the Kyrie side where, you know, this is a distraction. I see that. I also see the side of, well, we could give people something to give them a little joy for a little bit. Um, But I also see the side of this is for money. What are we actually doing? So, um, but I think, again, I have to applaud the players. I have to applaud, um, you know, I know Pels fans are going to be mad, but I have to applaud LeBron for saying, you know what, I have a platform, I'm going to use this to get people registered to vote, and then I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and pay for, pay millions of dollars so that um, people in Florida who have records can vote now. You know, I appreciate that. So, again, the league... Yeah, we're not going to agree without the way everybody does everything. There are things that LeBron did that I don't agree with, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to be mad at a man who at least is showing... Like, he's, like you said, putting his actual money where his mouth is, I am disappointed that players had to put up so much money relative to what owners have committed, mm-hmm. basically, which is $1 million per team over the next 10 years. And mm-hmm. that, to me, is a nothing um, contribution based yes. on what they contribute in other ways to the parties that do not have their mm-hmm. players' best interests in mind. Yes, I think that's where things failed in a lot of ways the owners were not held to the fire nearly enough 
Um, we're talking about billionaires, you know, I, I, and I say this as somebody who looks at the ownership of the Pelicans and the Saints, and I'm always like, okay, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'll give props when props are due, but what are you doing? What are you doing? You know? So, yeah, I don't think that they held them accountable nearly enough. Um, these are people who have power, not just financially, but a lot of them are in positions where they can make the calls and, and do the things that can actually make change. So um, I, I want to see more progress on that. Yep. Oh, I, I, and I've been directing that and I get in trouble for it sometimes, but I want to see, I said, I want to see Gail Benson go to Baton Rouge. If she mm -hmm. has this great relationship with John Bell Edwards here in Louisiana, then you need to talk to him about policy. You need to be, if you're the richest person in the state of Louisiana. That mm -hmm. makes you the most powerful person in the state of Louisiana. Absolutely. So use your, it's, and that's the thing I think owners are not getting is that it's not about, you can give money to, to social programs and that's fine, but that money's going to get spent. And when it's mm -hmm. done, there may not be any more progress. You just put in a, a bandaid over the wound. Mm -hmm. We need to fix the wound. We need you to get us into the doctor's office and some surgery needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And we need to get this cancer out of here. And we can't, that's, again, like you said, it's not, our, we're not able to do that. We need those white folks in power to do that. And they can't just do it in the public eye because that's my concern is that by the time we get back to next season, we know those things won't be on the court. Yeah. They will be on the court anymore. Yeah. They're not going to talk about it the same way. And the onus goes back on the players. And for me as a journalist, knowing how few of us there are and how limited our access was during the bubble. Mm -hmm. Those questions that are meant to continue this discussion oftentimes won't get asked. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's going to, I'm interested to see what they do with this upcoming season. And, and I think you're probably right that the message won't be there. You know, they may still keep it on the court. Let me say, if I they do they another. Because then you're going back to the individual arenas. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Never mind. You ain't going to see that on the court in Utah? No, no. You're going to see that in Utah. Right. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yeah. No, <laughs> they gonna put that on that gentrified court in Brooklyn. That ain't gonna happen. <laughs> in Boston, no. <laughs> Come on now. Come on now. Oh, There's gonna be no. a lot of Dunkin' Donuts coffee spilled on the floor <laughs> that night. <laughs> you might get away with it in Detroit and Atlanta. Yeah. They might be hanging on to it. So mm -hmm. look what we did. You, we're going to get this one. But <laughs> everybody else, mm -mm. no, it ain't going to happen. No. <laughs> Portland, they're too worried about their legal heroin, so they're good now. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was your, um, you know, the Alvin Gentry came, uh, era came to an end. Mm -hmm. um, now it's Stan Van Gundy take it over. I liked Alvin. I think Alvin ultimately, he got a... It didn't work, but ultimately there were a lot of things that contributed that he couldn't control to it not working. Yeah. Um, I'm going to miss him. I wish he had gotten the right team, but I'm encouraged by the Van Gundy hiring. How do you feel about that? Definitely the same way. Um, Alvin Gentry is a great man. I'm, I met him. Very sweet, very kind, all of those things. Um, and like you said, he was dealt a lot of bad hands along, you know, through the years, you know, a lot of injuries and, and the whole trade saga, all of these things. So I, I thank him for being the professional that he was and being so passionate about this team and about, you know, trying to get this team some wins, even through all of that. But I think it was, it was time. 
it was time to cut, to bring that to an end. I, I honestly, I look at it as one of the last pieces of the Dale Dips era. <laughs> you know, I feel like if you look at the team as a whole in the office, front office, and everything from when Dale Dimps was there to now, it's so different. It's so different. And I feel like Gentry was one of the last pieces of that era. And it was one of the major pieces of that. Um, I'm very encouraged by Stan Van Gundy and not just because of him using his platform and speaking up and speaking out and interested in seeing how he continues to do that. Um, But his, his whole message of accountability and defense, you know, accountability and defense. Um, One thing that I always got from Alvin Gentry was he's such a great man that I'm not sure he was a hard, not harsh critic, but a critic at times, you know, like I, I would listen to him in the huddles and he was talking to them at times, you know, in a way that I'm like, these are grown men. Don't hold their hand through this. They'd be like, they can, we can do this, okay? We need yes. one more. We, we can get one more stop, okay? What we need to do, if we come down on this possession, okay, you get it into Drew. Drew, you're going to take it in the middle. We try to create something and get a good shot. If we get a good shot early, we're going to get right back in this one, okay? Oh, that is so accurate. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's I'm not trying to knock him because that's him. I mean – but I'm like, these are grown men getting paid millions of dollars. Get in their behinds, you know? Um, so I love already that, you know, when they asked Van Gundy, you know, the season may be starting soon. He's like, well, we're going to be ready. We're going to be ready for whatever. I like that. I love that. So I'm, I'm interested to see how he fills out his staff, his coaching staff. I'm glad that we're keeping um, Fred Vinson. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see who else comes on. Um, but I, I love already that it's about accountability because that's what our guys need. We, we got a mostly young team and you can't just let them come in and, and do what they want. And I'm not saying Gentry let them do what they want, but I need some accountability. You know, I, this almost need to be boot camp style <laughs> if we want to actually have some meaningful wins along the way. I know Griff talks about meaningful games a lot and I'm like, that's great, but I want meaningful wins. <laughs> And that's the pressure now because this year mm-hmm. the NBA certainly doesn't want two seasons of Zion outside of the playoffs. No. So there's that pressure because the league wants a big star and on its biggest platform. And then you have the New Orleans pressure because mm-hmm. if you have another season without the playoffs here in New Orleans, again, now you're back to three, four seasons again with no postseason. And the conversation starts going – is Zion going to leave? That happens immediately. Yeah. We know that. We just know that's the NBA. They're doing it with Giannis. They did it with AD. They'll do it again. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of pressure on on David Griffin to get this right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that the Van Gundy um, hire is a great step towards that. Um, I, I think that, again, we're going to have to be patient. You know, we're going to have but to only be patient. So patient. A, but only so patient. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There, I know there are going to be some growing pains. But there, I think still that with this team that we have, if you look at it on paper right now, there is no explanation for that poor performance in the bubble. Like on paper, it does not make sense. And, and I almost, I try not to get into Twitter arguments a lot, but people are like, oh, the Pelicans aren't that good, they're trash. I'm like, we have two all-stars, an MIP, 
a player who could have been rookie of the year had he played more games, let's be honest. If both B.I. and Zion had won their end of the season awards in those respective categories, you know, we wouldn't be saying that the team sucks. So on paper, Zion could have won it had he played more games. Okay, so we get that. So we're talking about a team that could have potentially had rookie of the year and MIP. A team like that should be in the playoffs, period. So, yeah, I'm glad they made the change. (laughs) I'm glad they made the change. I'm glad that we're going to have some accountability. I'm glad that we're going to have some defense. Um, I'm glad that this whole conversation of culture, 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 we can actually see things that will give to it and not just words. We can see actions towards that. So, yeah. (laughs) So for Zion, for year two, again, we got a very small sample. The the worst sample was what we got in the bubble. Mm -hmm. Um, I am still not convinced that something else was not at play other than Mm -hmm. him just going home. Something either mentally happened there. There was something tragic, you know, that enough stress affected him because when he returned – it wasn't just that there wasn't a physical burst. There was no mental and emotional urgency on the court for him. Um, I wonder how much of that is just being disappointed in your rookie year not going the way it was. I wonder how much of it was whatever happened at home. Um, But his mental part, to me, is the biggest hurdle that he's going to have to get over in understanding that it's no longer just your physical abilities. It's going to be constant effort. It's going to be learning this game as an adult, as a pro. And I think that's the jump that he has to make next. Oh, absolutely, 1,000%. It was so obvious to me that it was something beyond basketball that was affecting him, you know. Um, you could just look at his whole demeanor. It was totally different from, you know, that that kid who's excited to get out here and play demeanor that we've seen from him so long. So, like, it was obvious to me. But I think – the key is hopefully this off season he's been getting it right. You know, I'm not going. I I I'm not going to do the whole body shape thing or nothing like that. I just say I hope he gets it right this off season. Whatever getting it right. Yeah, in shape tell. is in shape. I don't yes. know what that number is. Right. But be right. in shape. Right. Right. Be ready. Be yeah. ready for it. Um. But yeah, I'm sure there was disappointment for him of you know how his rookie season went. And and I look at this as okay this for me, is a more important season for him than his rookie season. This is like the one where all eyes really will be on him. Um, and I know that's a lot of pressure to put on a, night, a 20-year-old, but at the same time, you're not an average 20-year-old. This is what you, you asked know? for. Right. You've become a one-name athlete. If I say Zion, people know exactly who I'm talking about. So I, you know, the expectations are high. And and I'm I'm thankful though for Griff and company because they are protective of him, you know, and I think it goes, it's going to go a long way um, because none of us know what happened. It could have leaked out and it didn't. They protected him from that. Um, they're, they're protective of him in the sense of they never want to say, Oh, the team is his or this and that. They don't want to put that pressure on him. And I get that. But at the same time, the reality is people look at it as, he and B.I. have to seize it. Yeah. There's, no, there's no choice. It's either him or B.I. have to seize that mantle 
of I'm responsible on a night-to-night basis. And that's the thing that's pel- the Pelicans, frankly, the franchise, since Chris Paul left, the only time they had it was for the one year that Rajon Rondo was on the team, and he was the third or fourth best player on the roster. That can't be that guy. It mm-hmm. has to be one of your top guys to step up and do that. And the Pelicans, that wasn't Anthony Davis, and that's not a knock. That's just not who he is. It's that's not Drew Holiday. That is not who he is. So one of these two guys at some point has to take accountability for the team, if not both, and say, mm-hmm. we're the leaders of this team, and y'all going to go where we take you um, on a night-to-night basis. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, for, for Zion specifically coming in as a rookie, he felt uncomfortable taking that. Um, but second year, do it. Go for it. You know, B.I., you coming in, MIP, all-star, max contract, claim it. You got that right. You got that positioning. And I think everybody will fall in line. Um, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with listening to the vets and, and taking advice from the vets, but also recognizing that the vets are going to be long gone at some point. This is going to be your mantle to carry. So what kind of legacy are you trying to build right now? This year's critical, y'all. You've heard the rumors that the Pelicans are open to trading Drew Holiday. Mm -hmm. Um, Me and the guys at the Bird Rights are going to be doing a bunch of podcasts on potential trades. Uh, I don't think a trade happens before the season. I think that Griffin's intention is to give somebody the opportunity to see the starting five that he wanted in place last season before he makes a judgment. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think he's going to. Wait, probably. Griff is the kind of guy he likes to do things at his time, you know, and that's a good thing to a degree. Um, you know, shout out to Griff. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, I love Drew. I absolutely love Drew. For me, Drew is the heart in, of this team. And to a degree, maybe that's not a good thing. I understand what you're saying. And somebody's going to be like, what the heck do you mean? But oh, I know exactly I, what you're saying. What I mean by that is, as long as Drew is the heart of the team, B.I. and Zion can't be the heart of the team. And that's the future. Um, and I personally, I want Drew to get a championship. I want him to have that so bad. And I, I don't think he's going to do that with us soon. And so while he can get it, I say go for it. Um, you know, if, if they trade him, It'll be bittersweet, but I said it on Twitter. I was like, whenever he comes back for home for um, Pelicans games, I'm going to still yell out, Drew. It was like usual, you know. I'm going to be rooting against him, but. <laughs> right. So I, I do think, again, we were talk- I was talking about it earlier, the whole Dale Demps era. I feel like Drew is a piece That's of That's the last one. That's the last piece. And it's. It's possible it's time to move on. So, yeah, it's bittersweet. And, yeah, he is amazing. He's our best defensive player. But I think also, even in terms of Lonzo, let's let Lonzo become that. Because Lonzo on defense, he has that ability. He has that potential to be one of the best defensive guards in the league. Absolutely, 1,000%. I say that. And I'm not even a Lonzo stan, and I say that. So, and that's, and I hate at times how Lonzo stands are always like, get Drew out the way, get Drew out the way. But I do see that perspective. I right. get it. I get it. I get it. So, Because yeah. they're very different players. Drew works best in isolation where mm-hmm. he has the ball. And 
yeah, it's harder to pass and create motion with players like that. It's, mm-hmm. And I think that that's going to be ultimately what does decide this is that it is a, a more difficult fit than I think, you know, in Alvin's offense, you're going to get enough easy buckets. Mm-hmm. This is a more of a motion oriented offense um, that Van Gundy's going to bring in. And that's not necessarily Drew's strong point. So I could see right. him being a better fit somewhere else, but I, I just feel like they want to see what they've got. They just, that mm-hmm. I think that's a commitment Griff made to himself. And that's the reason yeah. he kept Alvin for an extra year was he wanted to see what he could do with that healthy team. It just didn't do enough when they were to do when they were together. And I don't yeah. think he saw enough progress out of some of the other players that he wanted to see. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I expect Drew to be in a Pelicans uniform at the beginning of the season. Me too. Um, yeah. See, uh, let me ask you this because I don't have too much more time with you, but so these are some quick hitter questions. Okay. Your all time favorite Pelican slash Hornet. Chris Paul. That's how I fell in love with the team. I was a huge Chris Paul fan. Like if he didn't have that big contract, I'd be like, get him back. <laughs> <laughs> that's my guy Wake Forest in the house yes yes I love Chris Paul and he recently he was talking about New Orleans on Twitter and I was like see he wants to come back so Chris yeah Paul. I, I had him uh, you know one game I went into the locker room after um, he played um, the Pelicans and I, I was talking to him and I said man what's the deal you know I said Cause I, I don't I don't get it I've never gotten the thing for him. I get it with Eric Gordon. I got it with a lot of other players, but I never got it with Chris because Chris didn't want to leave. Mm-hmm. That wasn't his intent. But when they start, just had a broke owner who didn't want to pay to keep David West, didn't want to keep Tyson Chandler. So if you were breaking up the group, Chris was like, well, the group is broke. I'm going to go solo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't blame him for that. But for some reason, New Orleans has this thing against him. By, and I just don't understand it. I don't. I don't. I'm like still the the lone Chris Paul Pelicans fan. I'm with you. I'm with you. I- and I, I think too, if we did get him back without like, if it weren't for that contract and we did get him back, I think he would be that voice of accountability that Van Gundy could use. I mean, between him and JJ. You gonna listen to Chris. You yeah, you gonna listen. You gonna listen, and you and our guys would learn so much from him. That's a hardcore um, little man. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm still, I still think it's legendary that he pointed out that dude's jersey wasn't tucked, and that, <laughs> like, come on, is he pays attention to the detail? He's a true point guard in that sense, a true playmaker in that sense, because being a playmaker is all about the small details. So, yeah, I. I'd love to get him back with that contract. That's all. <laughs> yeah, that 40 mil is hard to fit. Yes. It's hard to slide that in. Um, but, yeah, I absolutely – you know, I think he's the best point guard of his generation. And Absolutely. Maybe i put him top five. He's definitely top five all time because I go Magic, um, Oscar. Not, But Magic is always number one. Oscar, Isaiah's in that group for me. Chris Paul's in that group. The fifth one sometimes varies. Sometimes I say Jason Kidd. Sometimes I say Steve Nash. I'm not sure. But those are my four and a lot. Okay. That's a solid list. Okay. Would you rather have another best, number one bestseller mm-hmm. or a Pelicans championship? Oh! <laughs> Oh my God, that's a hard one. Ooh, I'm gonna go. 
Like, are you saying like never have a bestseller again? No, like or your next book. You know, maybe it's just it's a, maybe it's the struggle. Yeah, it's called struggle. <laughs> you ain't losing okay. your deal, nothing like that. Right, right. But right. it goes out. It's just not. It ain't hitting. You <laughs> I'll know. Take the, I'll take the chip. You take the L. I'll take the chip. I'll take the team chip because I've been a fan of this team most of my life. You know, when they were the Hornets and then the Pelicans, and it's been a struggle. You know, um, being a, a a fan of a team that you know shares a mark, shares a city with the Saints, and the Saints are known for winning. And people are like, oh, they don't win. And I know that we have the potential to get it, and so I have to go with the championship. I, I could I could take that L. <laughs> All right, you you were a rapper, mm-hmm. and you still drop some on occasion. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> Tell them you don't you don't flow on occasion when you buy yourself or just write or you don't do it. Not my own stuff. I I can rap other people's okay. stuff. Okay, so yeah, like, you ain't doing nothing. Don't nah. freestyling nothing. No <laughs> the only um the closest I've gotten to it is like I do some of the raps from on the come up the book. Okay, because I wrote raps in it, so I do some of those at like events and stuff. Gotcha. So well, then give me your top five dead or alive. Ooh, <laughs> well, obviously Pac is like going to be it. And and people always come at me like, he's not the greatest as far as lyricism, blah, blah, blah. When I'm talking about the whole package of a rapper, it's Tupac for me. You know, you're talking about somebody that was socially conscious, socially aware, blah, all of these things, it's Tupac. So Pac is always going to be my number one. I stand by that. Two is going to be big. Um, Three, it's between Nas and Jay-Z. Actually, no, I take that back. Three, as a Southerner, I have to say Andre 3000. All right. Four is probably, I'm going to give the advantage to Nas. And five is Jigga. All right. Top five. Here's my five. Okay. Number one is big for me. Okay. Um, Number two is Scarface. I'm a huge Scarface fan. And as somebody who lives with bipolar disorder, Scarface, there are some of his songs that have mm-hmm. really resonated for me in that regard. And that's probably why I have Tupac 3 for me is because mm-hmm. the duality of Tupac. I I have been told by people that he suffered from some of those same issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's those kind of things spoke to me. And even Biggie had those paranoias and things like that. There's the writings in those. Those are the kinds of things that kind of really stuck with me. Chuck D., yeah. Chuck D changed my life. Like yeah. just like just the first the first note of Public Enemy number one, just that that weird um sound uh you know that the, the bomb squad put together was unlike anything that I had ever heard. And my fifth, and people always get on me about my fifth, and they say, What are you talking about? Because they only have one album, the DOC. Oh I think it's the greatest debut album that anybody ever did. And I think that he was, everybody on the West mm-hmm. is biting the DOC. And if you go listen to that album again, there, it is maybe the, outside of the last song, which has everybody from NWA on it. Mm-hmm. It is the fewest curses of any gangster rap album you will ever hear. And it is dope from start to finish. Wow. And it's Dre's production when Dre is really starting to get into that you know, that funky level. And it's just so, I think it's a perfect album and I love the DOC. And there are a lot of people who say that the West Coast ain't the West, 
without him. Because let me think about how many no, records has he written on? Right. Like, he wrote on Snoop Records. He wrote on everything Dre did. He wrote for Easy E. He wrote for, I mean, it's just the yes. DLC to me is in that space. Hard to say there would be a West Coast without him. Yep. And the dude's yes. from Texas, and that's the funny thing. <laughs> yes. But people yes. forget Tupac's from Baltimore. They're like born yeah. in New York, raised in Baltimore for half his life, and it, you know, also mm-hmm. late, raised in the West Coast. So it's like people view him as just a West Coast figure. Right. But the first Tupac that I knew, you know, was wearing East Coast representing yeah. stuff like the the big, you know, yeah. big starter jackets and all that stuff. That was he. And hanging out with Tretch and all that stuff. That was he was East. Beat Bishop and uh, the dude from above the rim. Those yeah, two characters. Like, come on. <laughs> he was East then. He wasn't yeah. even LA until he got like out of prison. He never, yeah. yeah, he was Oakland. He was always talking he was about Oakland. Yeah. <laughs> but then all of a sudden it was LA and it was just, it's was, it was just a weird time. And nobody's done that story right. No. No one's done that story right. And no. It's just, and it's the Biggie movie was terrible too. I'm not going to say anything because the director of that did my movie, but. <laughs> I don't think it was the direction. It, it was more so the script. It, yeah, it yeah. made it too clean. It sanitized his life too much. And we know too much about people nowadays. Yeah. You know what I mean? To be fooled yeah. as much. If when these people are part of your life, the way that they were. Mm-hmm. And even without social media, these were omnipresent figures. Yeah. Like, we know too much. I can't think of, like, a a biopic about recent Black, like, hip-hop artists that's actually, like, good. TLC one was... Like, oh, don't get me started on that. Like, I'm cool with uh, Left Eye's sister. And, like, her family to this day, they're like, they were never talked to about that film. They were never, you know, uh, consulted about anything. And if you look back at the movie... The whole thing about Left Eye Story is stuff you already know. Mm-hmm. And they never show her family in it, even though they show T-Boz's mom and Chili's mom. They never do any of that. And she and had a very complicated relationship with her father. And- exactly. And, and they just, they did, they sanitized it. So, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 nothing- I, I wish for another Tupac movie for sure. Nothing is worse, though, than Whitney Houston's. No, which one? Wasn't it more than one? The the Lifetime one was the worst one, I think. The Lifetime Whitney Houston movie. That was just... Yeah, that was... Oh, no. I'll tell you one that's worse. The Aaliyah movie. That, oh, on, yeah. The, <laughs> the Aaliyah movie on Lifetime was horrible. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm all about redoing some of those stories. Yeah, we got to get a hip-hop movie. Yes. That gets up with the Temptations, the Jacksons, yes. the New Edition movies. We need yes. a hip hop movie in there, and I think that there's like to me, who has a, or an incredibly compelling story that I would love to hear is is Queen Latifah, because yes. the tragedy in her life, the amount of skill that this woman has, mm-hmm. as a, as a not just a hip a rapper but as a jazz singer as an actress i think she's the best actress to come from hip-hop actor or actress to yeah. come from hip-hop nobody else could have played bessie smith no who no I nobody mean, like, no it's just no. she needs her story told she does and, and the thing that you pointed out too is all of those good movies were miniseries they gave them more time 
So we had it in parts and you can't put the life of somebody like Tupac into a two hour film. There's so many work. stages. It just, exactly. Like it just doesn't work. So I mean, I've been talking to his estate about some other stuff and I'm like, let me see if we can talk about doing a mini series or something. I'm not saying that's happening. Y'all don't put that rumor <laughs> out there, but I'm like, Hey, y'all need to do a mini series about him. Cause that did not do his story justice. It can't it, be like at times it the best entertainment is honest to me. And that's why, that's why it's hard to do comedy because if comedy is not genuine and it doesn't make you laugh, you can't fake it. You can't fake laughter. And so, you know, the best stories, that's what I read. I read so much more nonfiction and that's what's much more comforting to me as a black person. Cause again, like you talked about earlier, there just weren't enough stories for me to read of fiction of yeah. characters that were like me. So I had to take resolve and, and read about actual people. You know, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you. I read a lot of nonfiction too. When I was working on the Hate You Give, like the book that helped me the most was Emmett Till's mother's autobiography. I, every person needs to read that. We're talking about these conversations of black women and the impact that they're having on social justice movements in this country, period. You need to read that book about this woman who, with one decision to put her son's picture um, out there for the world to see in turn ended up changing the world so nonfiction. we don't remember that. her fanny lou hamer Mm-mm. we don't talk about shirley chisholm enough about, it's like no no nah, nah, we can use we can use some of that we can use some of that yes. right now yes. um all right the last one i gotta get you with the brown sugar question okay when did you fall in love with hip-hop oh uh, i fell in love with hip-hop when I was about, let's see, 10 or so years old, and somebody, one of these kids who lived, their grandmother lived next door to me, and they were outside, and they had their uh, boombox outside, and they were playing Mr. Ice Cream Man by Master P. This is like, like, this is so Southern. And this is in Mississippi. I'm not from New Orleans. People always think I'm from New Orleans because I love New Orleans teams. Nope, I'm from Jackson, Mississippi, three hours away. But like that song and then just the whole No Limit movement, that was, that was when I fell in love with hip hop. That was the absolute moment. Um, funny thing is, I found out my aunt who lived in New Orleans taught Master P in elementary school. And so, like, when my mom was telling telling her, like, yeah, Angie's been singing this Ice Cream Man song around the house about some Master P from New Orleans. And my aunt was like, yeah, I told Percy, you know. <laughs> so, I uh, shout out to Master P. Still does not get enough credit for changing hip hop and, and, and changing the culture and, and being an entrepreneur and setting the, setting the path that so many rappers are now following. You know, y'all and need doing to start- it. Yeah, without exploit, exploiting his label, uh, the exactly. people on his label, you never, you don't see a single person who was on No Limit having the cash money arguments or the death row arguments or the Diddy arguments. Mm-hmm. There's not I, not one rapper I've ever seen come off of No Limit and be like, P cheated me. No, no. And y'all need to start supporting Master P. You know, he's got his own sneaker line. I bought some recently. He's got them rap snacks. He's got the noodles, the food brands, and people want to say, oh, this is, this is bootleg. No, don't come at the black man for trying to do his thing. Support him for doing his thing. 
So, I'll give you my quick masterpiece story. So you remember, uh-huh. do you, you saw, you've seen I'm About It. Yes. You know, Big Moon, who's, who appears in a bunch of those movies. Big Moon. Yeah. Big Moon's a basketball coach. And I first met him when I was going to Tim Floyd's basketball camp at UNO. So that's how long ago this is. This is in the 80s. Yeah. Um, I'm in my senior year of high school and I'm walking through the mall and I run into Moon. Mm-hmm. And he's like, hey, Dave, what's happening? You know, we're just talking. And he says, do you want to come down? I'm working on this movie. Do you want to just come down and, and be on it? And I was like, nah, I'm good. And oh, it was, I'm no. about it. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so I get to college and all my friends have this tape. They all have it on VHS. All the dudes on the football team are watching it every day. And I'm like, that could have, I could have been in that movie. Dang. Oh. <laughs> and then on the teacher oh, connection, my grandfather taught both Eddie Kendricks and Paul Williams from The Temptations. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. So That's amazing. And so, yeah, I got these like weird connections. My mother um, grew up for a time with Condoleezza Rice before she moved to Colorado with her father. Her dad was a reverend in Birmingham. Yeah. And so they knew each other. And my mother was also, um, it, I, it, um, she knew the girls who were killed in the church bombing in Birmingham as well. Yeah. And um, my, my godmother is in the film Four, Letter, Four Little Girls that Spike Lee did. Because um, wow. she was the mayor of Birmingham when he filmed the movie. And so, yeah. So, like, I have these, so this stuff was, this was my household. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. When you were, when my mother she always made sure I knew these things. And my dad grew up in Port Arthur, Texas. So, you know, he's seen oh, yeah. his side of it too. So yeah. Yeah, we were just in our house, we were just taught this is, this is the struggle. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, but with me, it was kind of similar. It was very similar, actually. Um, my mom, my mom grew up in the house and I later grew up in the house. Um, we were only a few minutes away from Megger Evers home. Mm. So when my mom was a little girl, she actually heard the shots that killed Megger Evers. Like she could tell you to this day about um, how my granddad got a call from a neighbor telling him, you know, be careful. There's a room of the night riders are coming through. And that's just another way of saying KKK. Right. And my mom says like my grandparents turned out all the lights in the house and like they sat on the floor and she heard this truck rumble through the neighborhood talking about where all the thinkers at. And lights flashing into the house, trying to find, I guess, black folks to mess with. And she was like, maybe half an hour after that, she heard those gunshots and they found out that Megger Evers had lost his life. So, like, I grew up hearing that, you know, right there near my house where I grew up. So it, it's always been there. I'm just glad now that I'm given the opportunity to put these young people on to the realness. I'm so glad we got to do this. I, I'm like, glad. This, this is this has been a fantastic conversation for me. Um, just I've enjoyed it immensely. I hope you have. I have. This has been one of the best interviews I've gotten to do. So thank you. Oh, Here's I appreciate this. that. I really do. And I hope we do. We have to do it again soon. Yes. Like let's yes. like right around when season gets going before the season starts. We we'll get your reaction to the draft and and how you feel going into it. So you know. Mark out some time in December for right. me, right before the season starts. You let me know, and um, I'm going to get you some hard-to-paint gear. All right. I'm so you can rock the stuff. You've seen the Pelican, right? You've seen the Voodoo Pelican that design? Yes. Do you, like, go to the site, and you pick something, and you let me know, and I will get it to you, since you're going to get my little girl some books. 
Well, look, I'm going to support. I'm going to support. I, right. I, I love supporting black businesses. So no, I appreciate that. No so I will hook you, I'll let you know my address because my baby girl would love to, to, to have the books. I, yes. I really appreciate that. That's, that's just, that's, that's above and beyond. And I, I can't thank you enough. Not a problem. So tell folks how they can follow you, how they can, of course, get the book. And, um, you know, when are you trying to have your, the next one out? All right. Um, you can find me on Twitter too much at, at Angie C. Thomas. Um, you will see in my bio that it says the Pelicans Drake. Griff gave me that title. I claim it. Y'all can't take that from me. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Angie Thomas. Um, my next novel, Concrete Rose, comes out January 12th. Um, I'm, we're working on the film for my second book on the come up. And yeah, all of my novels can be purchased at bookstores. I specifically would like for people to get them from local independent bookstores. Um, so shout out to the indies. Um, support them. Yes, yeah, on Amazon. They're on Amazon, but support local bookstores. Please. Um, so yeah, all of my novels are available wherever books are sold. And your website? AngieThomas.com. There we go. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you to Angie Thomas. And for her, I am David Grubb. You could, of course, you can follow me at DM Grubb on Twitter and at DM Grubb on Instagram. And go to my website, HITPwithDG.com. There's links to my writing. There's links to the pod. There's links to the store. So helps, that helps support independent media. And, um, and hopefully we get to do more great interviews like this and with your support. So until the next time. Thank you so much, and we'll talk soon. 